Good morning. This is Romans 1, uh, verse 1 to 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power, by his resurrection for the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you are also among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, who I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how I constantly remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now you at last, by God's will, may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. I am obliged both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Thank you, Gina. So, one of the things that I've noticed, I feel like I'm noticing as I have conversations with people inside the church, outside the church, uh, people young and old, uh, people of different backgrounds, and I have conversations with them, and, and if I say something to them like, did you hear on the news about such and such? I increasingly will hear people respond with a sense of disillusionment. And, and even I, I'm hearing more and more people saying, no, I, I haven't heard. I, I'm not really following the news. I don't really follow the news. Uh, I don't watch the news on television or I don't, I don't look up the news on my computer or on my phone. You know, I'm just sort of disillusioned with it, so I don't really follow it. And it seems like people today have this impression, this sort of sense that there's really there's really only two types of news out there. This is sort of the perception that people have. There's two types of news, right? There's bad news and fake news. Those are the two types of news that seem to be available. There's bad news. I remember going back about 12 years ago, I think it must have been, when I was single, and there was a three- or four-month period where my grandpa was living with me. So it was these two bachelors, me and my grandpa, 
I think it actually could have been a really fun sitcom, me and my grandpa, something like that. The comedy that went on in the interactions between us was amazing. But anyway, uh, he was not very mobile. He was getting up in age. And so I would go off to work and he would stay home. And he, actually, he was so immobile that I would, I would make breakfast for him before I would leave, even though he would eat it like two hours later. So I would get the cereal, I'd get Cheerios poured, and he, he asked me to pour the milk on before I left. And then two hours later, he would come out and he would eat it. He didn't even want to have to pour the milk into the Cheerios. You got to understand, he did, his teeth didn't work very well, so he needed it to be as soft as possible. I'm telling you, it could have been a sitcom. Anyway, so... So uh, my grandpa would stay home, and he would listen to the radio. We only got about two, two radio stations, something like that. He would listen to the radio, and he, he began to affectionately refer to this radio station as the doom and gloom station. And so if I would come home after the day at work, and I would come home, and this is the kind of scenario that might play itself out. I would come to him, and I'd say, Grandpa, how was your day? And he would say something like, well, you know, two people got murdered in East Baltimore. The mayor's having an affair with uh, one of the superintendent of schools, and they just discovered that Reese's peanut butter cups cause cancer, you know. I don't know if that's true or not, but it would be something like that. It was just bad news. And I, I get this feeling that, that a lot of us feel that way, that it's bad news or it's fake news, right, that what you hear isn't true. You hear stories, you hear tweets, you hear all kinds of things that, are misleading, intentionally misleading, sometimes uh, quotes taken out of context, sometimes things simply made up all to simply push some sort of political agenda. And I I was actually going to read like, you know, the top six fake news stories of the past year. But then I realized some of you might not think that those stories were fake, right? Like, well, that's not fake. And then you'd be like, actually, there's a third category of news. There's fake, fake news, There's people who say that the news that I know is true is fake, and so they're fake. So you've got bad news, you've got fake news, and you've got fake, fake news. And that seems to be the world in which we live. Well, today we're beginning a new series, a new series on the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is is in many respects sort of the Mount Everest of the New Testament letters. Uh, certainly, when you look at the writings of Paul, it's sort of like, it's the Mount Everest. And, and so I, I finally, you know, when I first came to this church, I didn't like start, like nine years ago, I didn't like start my first day with Romans. That would have been pretty cocky for me to come in and try to preach on Romans my first year here. You know, I, I had to start with some lower mountains, you know, like Mount Mitchell or Mount Elbert in Colorado or Mount Whitney in California and then Mount McKinley But now I'm in my early 40s, and I'm already feeling the deterioration of my body, so now things are only going to get worse. So if I don't do it now, I don't know when I'm going to do it. So here we are. We're going to embark on the book of Romans, and we're titling this series Good News. Good News. Because what we discover, the book of Romans is all about good news in a world where all there is is bad news and fake. It's about good news. And we see this in the first verse. I guess it's the, yeah, the first verse. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And that word gospel just means good news. 
It just means good news. What Paul is saying is that his entire life, his entire purpose is to be an apostle to go out and proclaim the good news, the good news of God. And, and so my hope is that as we kind of go through this book and we go through this series, that it will, it will cultivate a certain ethos. We will cultivate an ethos because, you see, I think that, that people who have experienced good news, there's an ethos to them. There's sort of a joyful uh, ethos to people who have experienced good news, right? I mean, th- think of it this way. I mean, have you ever come across someone who is abnormally joyful? They're just abnormally joyful. Like you, you go to the office uh, one day and the woman who works next to you, she's normally just, you know, kind of rude and uh, will often uh, do things and say things that seem like she's trying to go behind your back. You know, maybe she'll always cut in front of you right when you're going to get coffee at the coffee maker. She'll just kind of jump right in and beat you there. And, and so you're not, you know, you're not exactly very fond of her, but you come in one day and she's just joyful. And she's like telling everybody in the office, hey, who wants coffee? I'm going to Starbucks. I'm going to get some coffee. It's on me, you know. And, and she's like patting everybody on the back. I love you. You're, such, you're so great. I'm so glad you work here in the office with me. And everybody's like, what is going on with her? And then maybe you find out that her boyfriend just proposed to her. She's getting married. She's got good news. And so there's sort of a joyful ethos to people who have Good news. Maybe you have a, a, a friend in school, and, and they're applying to, to colleges, right? And, and, and one day they come to school, and they're just skipping down, skipping down the aisles, and they're, now they're just skipping class, actually. They don't really even care about going to class anymore. Why? Because they got accepted to the school they wanted to get into, and so there's this joyfulness about them because they've got good news. People who who have good news that embodied in their lives, they, they have a sort of a joyful ethos. I'll never forget when my family was in Hawaii about 15 years ago. It was our second day in Hawaii, and my sister actually had some sort of an accident in the ocean, and they had to life flight her to a hospital. And there was about an hour and a half where we didn't know what was happening, the severity of what was going on. And I'll never forget sitting in the waiting room at the hospital. They had allowed my parents to go in to see her. And then my dad came out the door. And he just, the smile on his face and the energy and the mannerisms that he had, he came out and he said, she's fine. She's going to be okay. He, he had good news. And there was this joyfulness that just kind of ran through every aspect of, of his body and the way he acted and his mannerisms, that, that when you have good news, it creates a sort of joyful ethos. And my hope is that as we go through the book of Romans and we explore this good news, it will cultivate a joyful ethos individually and collectively as a church. So Paul comes, and in the book of Romans, he announces the good news. He proclaims there is good news. And one of the main things we're going to see throughout the book of Romans is that this good news is for everyone. This good news is for everyone. And it's important for us to to see this, and and I need to take a step back here for a minute. To to really understand this, to really see this, we've got to understand why he sends this letter. Uh, And we've got to understand what the book of Romans is. It is a letter 
right? And you can maybe know that. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you've never really thought about it before. But the book of Romans is a letter. He's writing a letter. He's in the city of Corinth, which is in southern Greece, and he's writing it to the people in Rome, to the Christian community in Rome. The Christian community was in probably in smaller house churches is what the setup would have been like. But he's writing a letter to them. It's a letter, and that's important to note. It's not, for example, it's not simply some sort of uh, theological essay. He's not writing a theological essay. His goal was not to get this published in the Oxford Journal of Theological Studies. Of course, all kinds of things in the Oxford Journal of Theological Studies have been written about Romans and looking at Romans, but that's not what Paul was doing. He was writing a letter. It's important to notice that because actually the book of Romans is incredibly deep, incredibly dense theologically, and so it's really easy as we're reading and get to kind of get caught up in that and forget this is a letter that he's writing to these people in Rome. In some respects, if he were writing it today, it would be more like an email. Imagine the book of Romans as an email. Now, a very carefully thought through email, right? Not just one of those ones you would just kind of shoot off without thinking about it. This is a very well thought through email, but that's how it would have been written today. He's writing a letter to the people in Rome, and he's got a couple very specific reasons which sort of emerge as you study the text carefully. And basically what you study is, or excuse me, what you discover is that he wants them to realize that this good news is for everyone. Specifically, it's for Jews and Gentiles, right? And that's the main burden that he's sort of dealing with here is he wants them to realize this is for both Jews and and Gentiles. Now, of course, this is a theme that runs through a number of Paul's letters. And for example, in the book of Galatians, he's writing to the church in Galatia, which is in Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to the church in Galatia. And there the emphasis is he's trying to get them to understand to a largely Jewish, Jewish Christian community, he wants them to understand, hey, this isn't just for Jews. This good news is for everybody that the cultural distinctiveness of being Jewish is not necessary to receive this good news. So he wants, in in that particular letter, the emphasis is on this idea that it's not just for Jews, it's also for Gentiles. Now, when we come to the book of Romans, what we discover is we see that as well. We're going to see him talking about, hey, this is not just for Jews, this is also for Gentiles. But then we're also going to see him go the other direction and say, hey, Gentiles, this isn't just for you, this is also for Jews. So he kind of goes back and forth with playing both sides of that. And part of the reason for this, and this is a little bit of conjecture, but a lot of scholars suggest that basically what happened in Rome is that about eight or nine years prior to Paul writing this letter, the emperor, Emperor Claudius, the Roman emperor, kicked the Jews out of Rome, expelled the Jews out of Rome. And it seems the reason why he kicked them out is that there was some sort of, uh, sort of intramural debate within the Jewish community. There was some sort of infighting within the Jewish community, and it was causing some sort of public unrest. And actually, there's evidence that suggests that the public unrest, or excuse me, the the schism between the Jews was precisely because of the gospel, that because of Jesus, there was this debate about who is Jesus, and it was causing all this sort of unrest within the Jewish community in Rome. And so the Roman emperor kicked all of the Jews out, including, that would include also the Jewish Christians, which meant for about five years, after five years, a new emperor came and that edict was overturned and the Jews were allowed to return. But there was a five-year period where the Jewish Christians were not in Rome. And so those 
those Christian communities would have been comprised of entirely Gentile Christians. And so Paul is suspecting that they might start beginning to kind of go their own way and start to have a theology that suggests that maybe this really uh, isn't about Judaism and isn't for Jews, which, which later on uh, Marcion would come along and actually advocate precisely that in Rome. And so Paul is even trying to counteract that. So what he's trying to do here is play both sides. What he realizes is that this community is a community where these Jewish Christians have come back, but these Gentile Christians have been kind of doing their religion for a while. They've been worshiping Jesus on their own for a while. And so he's suspecting and, and maybe hearing that there are tensions there. And so he wants them to be unified. He wants them to realize, hey, Jews, this is for Gentiles. Gentiles, this is for Jews. Folks, this good news is for everyone. And of course, then this leads to a second reason why he's writing this is because it's for everyone, he wants to be able to this to expand. He wants this to go out to people who have never, never heard the gospel before. And so it's clear what he wants to do is to be able to go to Spain. He wants to go from Greece and Corinth. He wants to go to Rome and Italy. And then he wants to go to Spain to proclaim the good news to the people in Spain. And it's clear he's hoping that Rome will be sort of a base for him, a, a base of operations. I, I studied this book in seminary, and my seminary professor had this thick Irish accent, so he'd always say, the base of operations is how he used to say it. So if that slips into my vocabulary, uh, forgive me. So he's, he's hoping that Rome will be a base of operations for his mission to Spain. So again, the point, the reason he's writing this is so that people will understand that this good news is for everyone. This good news is for everyone that It's not just for one group of people. It's not just for one culture. It's it's not, let's put it this way, it's not just for rich. It's not just for the poor. uh, it's, It's not just for one particular ethnicity. It's not for smart people. It's not for maybe not very smart people. It's not for tall people. It's not for short people. It's for everyone. And I want you to think about how kind of rare that is. Because usually, or oftentimes, good news for one group of people is not necessarily good news for other people. Right? Oftentimes, depending on who gets elected to become president of the United States, it's good news for some people, and it's bad news for other people. Right? Maybe it's good news for one industry, but it's really bad news for another industry. Maybe their election is good news for one group of people, but it's bad news for another group of people. What's so rare about this good news is that it is good news for everyone. It's good news for everyone. And, and Paul, he, Paul, he wants them to, to understand this. He wants them to realize it's not about your culture. You don't, you don't have to change culturally who you are, that this good news is for everyone, no matter who you are. All that matters, and this is a theme that will run through the book, all that matters is that you have faith. All that matters is that you have faith. And this emerges in verses 16 through 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, not ashamed of the good news, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He wants them to understand 
that, that this is not about culture. It's not about any of those kinds of things that separate us. What enables you to receive the good news is simply that you have faith. Now, I think one of the things that Paul understands, though, and this emerges, I think, in this text here, is that having faith isn't always easy, is it? Having faith, trusting in God, is not always easy. We live uh, in an age which Charles Taylor calls the age of, an age of contestability. An age of contestability. In other words, what he's getting at is that whatever you happen to believe, there are plenty of people who will contest you on that. No matter what you believe, there are people who will contest you on what you believe. And so as believers, we live in a world where there are all kinds of influences that want to contest what we believe and convince us that we shouldn't believe this. Now, of course, what needs to be said as well is that everybody's in this position. This is an interesting point that Charles Taylor observes. Everybody is, even unbelievers. Theirs is contested by us. So everybody is in this place of contestability. There's this sort of uncertainty with regards to what they believe, no matter what you believe. We live in this age of contestability where it's not always very easy to believe, not always very easy to believe. Paul also lived in an age of contestability, particularly with regards to his Christian faith. I'm, I'm currently reading a biography of Paul, and the biographer, he makes this point. He says, you know, Paul just realized, and he was okay with this, he just realized that every city that he went into to start telling them the good news, he knew that pretty much everybody was going to think he was crazy. He just lived, he accepted that. He knew that wherever he, wherever he went, vast majority of people were just going to think that he was crazy. And so it's hard. It's hard to believe when people are, are challenging your faith. And I think that that's why what we see even already in this passage is how much we need each other. This is why we need the faith community. And we, we see this uh, here in verses 11 and 12. When he's writing to the church in Rome and he's getting very personal, personal now, he says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul realizes he needs it. He needs encouragement. He needs the church community to build his faith. It's not always easy to believe. And and that's why I encourage you, right? This is why I encourage regular church attendance. This is why I encourage you to get involved in some sort of community group ministry, right? Because this is what helps to build your faith. You know, I've often said you don't come to church to get God to love you. You, get, you come to church to get you to love God. You don't come to church to get God to love you. You come to church to get you to love God. And we can say the same thing. You don't come to church to get God to have faith in you. You don't come to church See, see, look, God, I'm, you should trust me, God. I, I go to church. I'm in community group. I'm one of the people you can trust, God. That's not why you come to church. You come to church to get you to trust God. That we need one another in an age of contestability. We need one another to come and encourage one another in our faith. You know, I just had my community group this past Friday, and it was encouraging to my faith. There's no question about it. It was encouraging to my faith. We need one another, and Paul is writing to the church in Rome saying he can't wait to be there because he wants to encourage them, and he needs to be encouraged as well. And the point, again, this is getting back to what he's saying, is that faith, 
That is all that matters. You see, the good news is for everyone, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what your, your you know, demographic is, it's for everyone. And, and Paul, really wants, Paul really wants them to be able to get along whatever their differences are, whatever their cultural differences are. And I think that's really important, right? Isn't it? It's difficult for people from different cultures to kind of work together and be together. And I think we see that in our own age, for sure. We see that in our own age. I think we see it in a number of different ways. I actually think we see it in terms of generations, that oftentimes the cultural differences that we experience fall more along generational lines than even ethnic lines, that oftentimes you could have three people from from completely different ethnic backgrounds, but they're the same age, and they seem to sort of connect better than they do with their their own ancestry, their own people that are older than them, and that's simply because our world is changing so much that it's not a matter of coming from a culture over here. Maybe you came from China. Maybe you came from Korea. Maybe you came from Mexico. Maybe you came from Wyoming. Wherever you came from, those cultures are different. The major cultural difference is generational. When were you born? And so we've got to realize that culture manifests itself in a lot of different ways, and Paul would be imploring us, whatever those cultural differences are, Look, it's, you've got to realize it's for all of you. This good news is for everyone. Paul wants to take this good news to Spain so that everyone this can go out to peoples who have never heard it before. Now, here, of course, is the question talked about the fact that the book of Romans is about good news and that this good news is for everyone. But the question that then arises is, well, what is the good news? What is this good news that is for everyone? And very simply what emerges in this text, and there are a number of ways in which we could say this, but what emerges in this passage is simply this. The good news is that Jesus is Lord. That's the good news. Jesus is Lord. Okay, verses 2 through 4. Let me, let's look at this here for a minute. The gospel, here we go. Paul, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So very simply, the good news that Jesus is Lord. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean that Jesus is Lord? Well, what that means, this gospel of God, this proclamation that Jesus is Lord, it simply means this. It means that the God who created everything and everyone has come for everything and everyone. That's ultimately what this is getting at. The God who created everything and everyone has come for everything and everyone, or to put it a different way, the way Paul kind of puts it in this passage here, is that God has done exactly what he said he would do. This is the point that he's getting at here in verse 2. It's the gospel, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Here he's talking about, if you go back and you look at Isaiah and you look at Jeremiah, and we don't have time to go there, but if you go back and you will look, you will see that the prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures, they said this would happen. 
They said that the God, the God who created everything, the God of Genesis, the God who created all things, they said that he would come, that he would come and he would come as a person. He would come as this person who would come and would deliver the people and would become Lord, would be seen as Lord. So he's saying that he's simply, what, what God is doing is what he always said that he would do. Now in verse 3 here, right, it says, regarding his son. So the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. Now, this is where Paul just packs a lot into this. Actually, it's, it's quite possible that he's actually quoting from some sort of a hymn or some sort of a creed that the early church used in worship. And oftentimes, therefore, it's packed pretty dense. But what he's saying here is, God regarding his son. So here he's talking about his son who is you know, uh, divine, the son of God the divine son of God, then what he's saying is then regarding his human nature, what he's basically describing here in verse, uh, verse 3 is the incarnation. It's his way of talking about the incarnation. His son who, who, as to his human nature, here's the incarnation, was a descendant of David. So here, here it is. He was born. He became a human being. He comes from the line of David. He became a person just as, just as the scriptures always said that they would. And then it says, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God. Now here, what it's likely talking about is here when it talks about son of God, the, probably the main emphasis here is it's a way of saying that he is the Messiah. He is the promised king. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, it talks about how God will raise up a leader in the line of David and that he will have a kingdom that will not end. And it actually says in that passage, it says, he will be a son to me and I will be a father to him. So in in referencing here, saying he's the son of God, what it's saying is that through Jesus' resurrection, it demonstrates that he really was the coming Messiah, the one whom had been prophesied throughout the scriptures and in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So again, it's, it's, saying that, it's saying that this thing that God had promised would happen has happened in the person of Jesus, that he is the son of God and now he is Lord and he rules over all. Now, what we have to see also, again, there's a lot going on here, that again, he's talking about this language of Jesus being the son of God and Jesus being the Lord of all. This is a fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. But there's also something Paul is doing in the language that he uses here. Because the way people living in Rome, they would hear something else in this. Not only would they hear that Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament scriptures, they would also hear in this language something else. What they hear is this. If Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. If Jesus is Lord, then the Roman emperor is not ultimately the Lord. In the year 31 BC, about 85 years before Paul writes this letter, Octavian, General Octavian, uh, defeated Mark Antony, and then he became Augustus, the first Roman emperor, Uh, in the Roman world, and he ushered in this entire era of the Roman Empire. And from Augustus on, something began to happen, and that is that the the Roman citizens began to worship the Roman emperor. This developed over time. Uh, Augustus was seen as the, the son of God that his adopted father, Julius Caesar, was divinized, was seen as a god, and so then then he was seen as the son of God. And then this sort of passed on to subsequent 
emperors. For example, in the famous scene where Jesus is handed a Roman coin and basically asked, hey, you know, should we, should we pay taxes, that sort of thing. On that coin, it would have said something like Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. So right on there, it would have made a claim that the emperor, who at that time was Tiberius, was the son of God, that he was divine. And also in, in this the Roman emperor was referred to as Lord. Caesar is Lord. So when Paul uses the language of saying that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus is Lord, he's also making a very strong claim. He's saying Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Okay, now what does that practically mean? How how do we, okay, what does that mean for us? Well, I think we do have to see in this, in a sense, there's, there are political overtones to this. There's no question that the people in Rome, they would have heard this with uh, political overtones. It's a little bit difficult for us to understand because in our society, religion and politics are much more separate than they were in the Roman Empire. Again, they worshipped their leader, I mean, they, and they thought he was divine. So politics and religion were kind of merged together in a way that we don't really see. But what we have to, we do have to see the, the way in which they would have heard this in sort of a political sense. And so what he's saying is that, he's saying, look, yeah, Caesar is not ultimately Lord. There is a higher law. There's a higher law than even what the Roman emperor has to say. Now, of course, what's interesting is that he's not then saying, this is not a complete rejection of Roman authority. He's not now saying, okay, therefore you should just not listen to anything that the Roman emperor says. He's not saying now you shouldn't pay taxes, you shouldn't do anything like that. In fact, that's why in Romans 13, a passage which has actually come up in the news recently, uh, Romans 13 is a passage where he says, no, listen, you should obey your leaders. They are appointed by God, right? And so you should respect them. Again, he He understands God to be in control of all things, so he understands that the good and the bad leaders, they all, in the mystery of God's providence, are appointed by God. And so, yes, you should, as a general rule, you should obey them. And and actually, Paul actually, in many respects, uh, owes a lot to the Roman Empire. Uh, He he actually thinks rather favorably of the Roman Empire. If you read through the book of Acts, uh, the Roman rule actually saves his neck several times where there are mobs that want to kill him and whatnot, and oftentimes it's actually the Roman authorities that save his neck. So he, he appreciates the rule of law and all of that. But what we have to realize is that this really is a qualification for this bigger statement that he's making, and that is that Jesus is Lord. And so Paul would say you certainly should obey what your leaders, uh, what the rules and the laws that are set out by your leaders But he would say there does come a point if it goes against the law of God, well, then maybe now you have to rethink that. Because Paul himself, believe it or not, was actually involved in activity that ultimately would have been considered breaking the law. He was trying to convert Gentiles to worship Jesus, and in worshiping Jesus, he was getting them to no longer worship the emperor. So he was actually getting them to break the law. What was interesting is that the Jews in that time period They actually got a a hall pass. They were excused from worshiping the the emperor. They didn't have to, but everybody else did. And so Paul is actually, you know, in the end, he actually is encouraging them to break the law by not worshiping the emperor and worshiping only Jesus. So his main point throughout this whole thing is Jesus is Lord over all things. Okay, so we see sort of this political sense, these political overtones, but it goes much deeper than that. 
to say that Jesus is Lord goes much deeper. It goes much deeper than any sort of human ruler could ever have. So let's kind of look at it this way. What kind of rule does Jesus have? Okay, uh, is it a democracy? Can we just vote Jesus out? Sorry, Jesus, we don't think you should be Lord. You're out. You no longer rule. No, it's not a democracy. I want you to think at it this way. The kind of rule that Jesus has, and just kind of work with me on this for a little bit here, it goes beyond totalitarianism. It goes beyond totalitarianism in the sense that even the most totalitarian regime, well, it seems like they have no limits, right? I mean, they can do whatever they want. A totalitarian regime will use force. They'll take your house from you. They'll fine you. They'll make it difficult for you to advance uh, in your career if you don't obey them, if you, if you don't follow them. If you, don't, you know, they, they can use propaganda to try to brainwash you, and they can do all kinds of things to try to control you. But here, I want, I want you to hear this because I think this is an interesting way of seeing it. Do you know how Jesus exercises his rule over you? He puts his spirit inside of you. He puts his spirit inside of you. I mean, now, can you imagine? Pick your favorite totalitarian leader in in history's past. Imagine if they could put their spirit inside of you. You see, it's taking rule and reigning and lordship to a completely new level. What we're going to discover is that this is what it means to submit to Jesus as Lord is to say, you put your spirit in me and take complete control of my life. Now, the question is, of course, why is that good news? If you pick your favorite totalitarian leader from the last 200 years, and you say, would it be good news if they could put their spirit inside of you? Like, no, that's not good news. So why is it good news? that Jesus can put his spirit inside of you? And, and the answer is simply this. There's a lot of ways we can unpack this, and we'll see this as we go through the book of Romans. Because only Jesus can give you true and lasting peace. Jesus is the only Lord who can give you true and lasting peace. We see in verse 7, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you hear the word peace, again, those living in Rome would have heard something when they heard that word peace that we might not pick up on. That they were living in the Roman Empire and they were living in a period, this is around 57 AD, they're living in the middle of a period which is known as Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. This was a time in Roman history where there was unparalleled peace, that the Roman leaders had brought a tremendous amount of peace. And for about 200 years, this was the case. They were, they were safe from foreign intrusion uh, for, for about 200 years. Trade was really good. One of the reasons why Paul's able to zip all over the Roman Empire is because it was safe. Trade was good. People were prospering. It was a time of of peace. And so in some respects, it's kind of an inopportune time for, for him to be going around saying, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Jesus is going to bring peace. Everybody, what are you talking about? We have the, the greatest amount of peace really in, in quite a long time. 
what is he saying here? He's saying, look, even the greatest leader, no matter, no matter how great your worldly power is, it can only bring peace to a certain level. Only Jesus can bring true and lasting peace. We're going to see in Romans 2, he describes, you know, what are people like, you know, Paul, as Paul goes around the Roman Empire. What are people, you know, what are people experiencing with all of this peace, this Pax Romana and all of this safety and, and all of this wonderful trade, which is allowing people to prosper? And he says, what, what are people like? And he says, well, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, right? This doesn't sound like people who are at peace. He's saying we may have Pax Romana, we may have worldly peace, but only Jesus can bring lasting peace. Friends, we live in a similar age. We live in Pax Americana. We live in an age and have we very easily take this for granted where there ha- there's peace, unparalleled peace in our land, something that, that most people in the world do not really experience. We've experienced that kind of safety for, for many, many years. But I think, isn't it true? Isn't it true that people are still not at peace? Alexis de Tocqueville came in the 19th century from France And he came at a time when there was a tremendous amount of peace in America. And this was an observation that he made about Americans. He said this. He said, there is a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. There is a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. He's saying, even though they have this worldly peace, there is still this sort of melancholy. And much like what Paul describes in Romans 2. And so what Paul's getting at is no matter how great the worldly powers are and no matter what kind of peace they can bring, they can only bring a a certain kind of peace. That obedience to worldly powers, as important as that is, they can only bring a certain kind of peace. He talks about obedience here. He says that through him and for his name's sake we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. What he's saying is obedience to worldly powers can bring a certain measure of peace, but the only way you'll ever experience true peace is if you are obedient to the true Lord. Only Jesus can bring lasting peace. Pax Romana lasted 200 years, but the peace of Jesus is eternal. At the heart of the good news, as it says here, is that he came back from the dead. He was raised from the dead. And that those who follow him, this will be unpacked as we go through the book of Romans. Those who follow him, they also will be raised from the dead. The Romans had the power to kill, but they did not have the power to give you eternal life. This is the kind of good news that can trump whatever bad news you experience. It's the kind of good news that just supersedes whatever bad news you might come to experience. I had a conversation with my father 
Uh, yesterday, we discovered he went in for some tests, and it's possible, we don't know for sure, but he may have cancer in his back, in his lower back. We don't know for sure, but I was talking with him yesterday, and, you know, when you hear that kind of bad news, it's really hard to know what to say. We just kind of talked about how he's doing. But then we, we were able to, we were able to, to turn the conversation because my dad believes that Jesus is Lord. And we were able to talk about the good news of the gospel. And we had even a joyful conversation that in the midst of this bad news, there is a good news that supersedes whatever bad news you could ever experience. Friends, my hope is as we go through the book of Romans over the next several months, I'm not exactly sure how long this will go. My hope is that it will cultivate in us a desire and a submission to Jesus as Lord, a desire for Jesus and a, and a desire to submit more and more to him, that we would say, Spirit of Jesus, come into my life. Take control of my life. That I think it's important when, when Paul compares the lordship of Jesus to the lordship of Caesar, it's important that we see this comparison because I think what he wants us to see, what we need to be able to do is take from that and say, what are the worldly powers in our lives that we are looking to for peace? What are the worldly powers? Whether it's, maybe you're looking to the government for peace, I don't know. Maybe you're looking to your job, to your boss, to your career to find peace. Maybe you're looking to some other kind of relationship. And I think that Paul intentionally draws this comparison because he wants us to see what are the worldly powers that we are looking to for peace. And he wants us to see that will fail you. I pray that over the next coming months, uh, we would be a people who would surrender more and more to Jesus as Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you this morning and we praise you for the good news. Uh, The good news that really does uh, rival any bad news that could possibly come our way. I pray for those here this morning who perhaps have received bad news in any number of ways, and I just pray that you would, uh, your spirit would come into them and give them a peace that transcends all worldly understanding, a peace that transcends the circumstances that they're dealing with. God, I pray that you would be with us as we go through this book, that, uh, that we would really just sit on every word, that your spirit would work powerfully through every word, and God, that we would find the peace that comes from surrendering to you as Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name.